we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week, we are offering the audio from a panel discussion that we hosted recently. You can watch the video if you like, which includes the Q&A on our website at cis.org. What we've done is sort of cut to the meat of each of the presentations. And the panel discussion was on the occasion of the publication date, the publication of a new book by one of our analysts, Todd Benzman. This is his second book. The book is called Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Mass Migration Crisis in American History. And it's based on his reporting, very extensive reporting at the border in Mexico, in Costa Rica, and elsewhere about what caused this problem and what consequences it's having. It's it's an interesting book. It's not just sort of a policy book with lots of facts and figures. There are some numbers in there, but there's no math involved. It's mainly a reporting book, a narrative of what's happening and try to explain why this happened and what's happening. So Todd will present first. He is a former foreign correspondent, covered the Balkan Wars, and for for something like 20 years was a reporter. Then he spent about 10 years as an intelligence analyst with the Texas Department of Public Safety, looking at actually the border and security threats there. So he was actually uniquely qualified to write about this. He's first going to talk about the book. Then the second presenter is Charlotte Cuthbertson, who's a correspondent for Epic Times covering the border. And maybe even more importantly, that she lives at the border, lives in a small town right near the border, which is experiencing and continues to experience a significant flow of people, not people turning themselves in, but people trying to avoid the border patrol. So she has a lot of experience with, you know, damage caused to ranches, car chases, border patrol chasing, smuggling vehicles, that sort of thing. And then the third speaker is Chuck Holton. He's an independent correspondent, a war correspondent. His material is for the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN. So he's a kind of a stringer correspondent for them covering the border extensively. He's based in Panama. So he has gone to the Darien Gap, which is that jungle area in eastern Panama, but has also gone all over the rest of the world, Dominican Republic, Armenia, Ukraine. He covers the war in Ukraine a lot. So he has a lot to say about what he's seen in Panama and elsewhere. And then each of the panelists had actually a brief video presentation of a minute or two that related to what they were talking about. You'll be able to see that in the show notes. There's the link to the whole video part of the presentation. So now we're going to start with Todd Benzman. Well, thank you, Mark. And I appreciate being here and finally having the book out. 
as he mentioned, I am a recovering journalist, and an old journalist journalism aphorism holds that a primary purpose of journalism is to write the first draft of history. I wrote Overrun in that spirit as a first draft of this particular historic event. And one of the primary missions of the book is to establish, in fact, that this is a historic event in U.S. history. Nothing like this has ever happened to the United States. The mass migration that has happened at the southern border reaches far beyond the threshold of what would qualify as a historic event by every nonpartisan metric, and I mean by the numbers, by the government numbers. So events like that always warrant book writing. Somebody needs to write a book about historic events that are happening. This particular one is still in progress, makes it a little bit difficult, but we've had two years of this, and we need to have comprehension about how we got here so that at some point we can figure out how to get out of this. The subtitle of my book, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History, is supported by the numbers. So I thought I'd take you through some of these numbers. Every record since President Eisenhower established record keeping for this sort of thing in 1960 stands smashed completely. Between 2010 and 2016, Border Patrol apprehensions typically never exceeded 500,000. We might have exceeded that once or twice here and there, but they didn't exceed 400,000 in 2011, 2012, and 2015. But then in 2021, uh, they broke through the ceiling at 1.7 million in a fiscal year and kept going to 2.4 million in fiscal 2022. Mind you, from 400,000 in a typical year, which seems like a lot at the time, seemed like a lot, to 2.4 million. So far in 2023, like I said, this is still ongoing, 874,000 in the first few months were on track at that rate to hit 2.8 million if we remain at that rate. They've changed uh, rechanneling a little bit through the ports of entry now, so you might not see it like that, but rest assured, just as many people will be crossing through the ports of entry under the new humanitarian parole as would have crossed had they been jumping illegally. To give you some context, a few years ago, the former secretary of DHS, Jay Johnson, was quoted saying, if I woke up in the morning and apprehensions were more than a thousand a day, I was going to have a bad day. We were in real trouble at a thousand a day. We stand for years now at 7,000 and 8,000 a day. That's history in the making. 200,000 a month. In December, we had 250,000 in a single month. Think of four Super Bowl stadiums filled coming through that border every month. Four Super Bowl stadiums. Border Patrol altogether in the last 24 months has laid hands on a stunning 4.6 million people, 4.6 million times since Inauguration Day. And this traces to Inauguration Day, as I'll explain, and as the book shows. As a defending force, the agency collapsed in Border Patrol agency, collapsed in retreat, 
so that it could do the administrative processing necessary to move all those people into the country. That left long swaths of the southern border undefended. Nobody there. I've been there. I saw it. I've driven it. No border patrol. Those are the people that we know about, but there's a whole other segment that we know less about, except that it happened. These are called gotaways. These are people who are running and got away through those undefended gaps. We can see that in addition to the 4.6 million, we might want to count, conservatively speaking, another 1.5 million who got away through the, through the border, meaning they penetrated past the 100-mile mark and are in the interior of the country. Before the Biden administration, that number might have been 20,000 or 30,000 a month. Now we normally see 60, 70, and 80,000 a month gotaways just coursing through that border. The number who have actually gotten in, remember we've had Title 42, the pandemic era, pushback policy for COVID. We were pushing under Trump probably about 88% of everybody who was apprehended back. That changed the day after Biden took office and actually on Inauguration Day to where they uh, were opening huge exemptions for certain categories. And so we know that at least 2.4 million were actually allowed into the country in just the first 18 months of the crisis. You can extrapolate beyond that. We lost track of some of the records for that because those came to us via a court case that required the government to report. And that ended in June of last year. So we don't really have a good handle on how many have been allowed in to the country. But that rate indicates at least 6 million people will have joined the United States by the end of Biden's term. That's probably a conservative estimate given the gotaways, et cetera, and that it, it may very well be 7 or 8 million altogether for the four-year term. That is a mega city on the order of LA and Chicago combined added to the country. There are other metrics, first time evers, that show that this is history. For example, 295,000 unaccompanied minors have entered. In 2013, they didn't even keep records on that because there were so few. We didn't have unaccompanied minors as a problem. We have had at least 300,000 by now, probably far more. That was by the end of 2022. They're still coming. Never have so many crossed that were not from Mexico or Central America. Nearly 43% of everybody hitting that border are from 150 other countries around the world. Uh, I've met personally immigrants from 20 different African countries from all over the Middle East, from Asia, from the entire world. And Chuck Holton is going to talk more uh, extensively about that traffic. Never have more on the FBI's terrorism watch list been apprehended. 98 in fiscal 2022, another 51 just so far this year, 14 the year before. That's in the context of gotaways. If you think about a million and a half people that got through, if we caught 120 or 150 on the terror watch list, how many didn't we catch? Interior deportations. Never has the number of deportations from the U.S. interior fallen so far so fast. For the first time since federal immigration laws were passed in 1903, 
a president effectively ended deportation of every kind in America, as it has been known for decades, and left in its place a first-ever sanctuary nation. The number of those ordered deported by a judge who got to stay tripled from 70,000 in 2020 to 260,000 by May 2022. Deportations from the interior fell 267,000 in 2019 to 59,000 in 2021. Under Biden, ICE arrested 48% fewer convicted criminals, deported 63% fewer criminals, and issued 46% fewer requests to other law enforcement agencies to detain criminals. I could go on with these numbers. We have never been here uh, in this country. That warrants a book. It also warrants regular media coverage, which we have seen precious uh, little of for such a major transformational event. Never have Mexico's ruthless crime syndicates and their paramilitary forces earned so much money from their control of the crossings and from smuggling. And for the first time in memory, the cartel proceeds from this smuggling event are said to have surpassed those from drug smuggling. And prior to this, they might have made a, you know, 500 million a year. Now they're up to as, as high as $13 billion a year. All that money is going to buy what? Weapons, equipment, and influence in Mexico. Not good for U.S. national security. Never has an American president decided as a matter of national policy that the executive branch of federal government would abdicate from its constitutionally mandated duty to follow congressional statutes, to not work against a flooding torrent of humanity across the southern border, and to not try to plug the dam. This is the first time we have ever had a president just simply abdicate from enforcing immigration law on purpose and knowingly, and never have more immigrants died trying to take advantage of the president's unprecedented policies, admitting large categories of border crossers into America. Last year, the United Nations declared the U.S. border the most dangerous in the world. They talked about 1,200 dead up until last year. Chuck's going to tell you about the real number. Why is this happening? So for the book, and as just part of journalistic duty, I was trained in this, I went to the primary sources. The primary source for this book are the immigrants, the people that are crossing, and why they're doing it. What are their calculations and rationale? And to a man, woman, and sometimes child, they cited President Biden's border policies. They said it. It's not me. And I quote them elaborately and at length in the book. What are these policies that we're talking about? Just real quickly, there were a lot, too many to recount here, but I'll name two main ones. One is that the president, when he entered office, decided to open up huge exemptions to Title 42 pushbacks for three main categories family units, pregnant women, and unaccompanied children. Why did he do that? We're not 100% sure, but we do know that the government of Mexico was watching the American election very closely 
remember that Mexico had been taking untold thousands and thousands of pushbacks from the Trump administration. They had to take care of them. Their law required that they be in detention centers and that they be fed and clothed and taken care of. That was a high maintenance duty. Nobody in the Mexican government wanted to do this. They wanted to pass that hot potato to the Americans the second they could. So they drafted a law in secrecy, in quiet, and watched the election. And within 72 hours of seeing Joe Biden elected, they passed that law. No press, nothing. And they set a delayed fuse for the implementation of that law to eat up the transition period between Trump and Biden. And it had the effect of releasing all of these family units from detention at once. With 10 days of Trump's administration to go, where do you think they went? They headed to the border and they waited for inauguration day. And on inauguration day, they poured over the border. The administration exempted them from Title 42, which meant that the snowball of that became an avalanche very quickly. The entire world heard about the family units pouring through from Tamaulipas into Texas mainly, and also they were taking women who were seven months pregnant. So guess what we started to see? And unaccompanied minors, we will leave nobody behind in Mexico to starve to death, they said. They messaged this. And the second thing that they did was, in addition to opening up these massive exemptions, is that they eliminated deportation. So if you want to run and you can get past the Border Patrol, you are enticed to do so because all you, all you have to do is just get through and you're in. You will not be deported. You will not be detained. This had the effect of two different looks to the border. One is give ups, huge, huge numbers that were just crossing in and say, take me in. And they were being put on a conveyor belt into the interior of the country on buses using NGOs. It's a massive operation that's still going on to this day, seven days a week, 30 days a month, buses, planes, every which way getting into American cities. But then the other look of this are the runners and the gotaways, which is the, another kind of pandemonium, kind of schizophrenic thing that's happening to the border. And Charlotte is in the middle of that. She lives in the middle of that. And she's going to tell us about what that looks like. Now the next speaker is Charlotte Cuthbertson. So I live in a very small Texas rural county called Kinney County in southwest Texas. And last week when I told a friend that I was coming up, she's 87, told her I was coming up to D.C. to talk about the border and the smuggling issue. And she said, well, you tell them that your 87-year-old friend sleeps with a pistol under her pillow now. So... That kind of encapsulates the the change that's happened in in the area where I live. So Kinney County is the red box there. Um, Basically, it shares 16 miles of border with Mexico. It doesn't have a port of entry, but there's Del Rio on one side and Eagle Pass on the other side. And so that area has become one of the busiest for illegal crossings. But the unique thing about Kinney County is that it is a thoroughfare for the, the gotaways. So as the cartel pushes the large groups of families, 
draws Border Patrol resources to to process those big groups, then the gotaways come around the, the sides and they're trying to get to San Antonio, which is sort of their first big hub, which then they can distribute throughout the US. So the gotaways come through by foot on the local ranches or they come on the sort of the back roads through Kinney County by vehicle. They're trying to avoid a Border Patrol highway checkpoint just southwest of Uvalde. And so a lot of the back roads come through Kinney County. So why are they trying to get away? Most of the time they're not caught. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they're from, where they're going. So the ones that do get caught give an insight into that population. Often they're previously deported. That's where your criminal population is. They would have no legal basis for getting into the United States, so they avoid law enforcement by any means necessary. So as Todd already said, the the number of known gotaways that Border Patrol has recorded in the last two years is somewhere between 1.2 million, 1.5 million people. We don't know what we don't know. Border Patrol doesn't have eyes along the whole border. And so there's the unknown gotaway population, which is impossible to, to estimate Last week, the Del Rio sector Border Patrol chief put out a tweet. He said that their agents had just apprehended three child sex predators within 48 hours, including a Salvadoran man convicted of child rape in Washington state, a Mexican man convicted of lewd acts with a child in Florida, and a Salvadoran man convicted of unlawful sex with a child in Utah. So... The gotaway population does include criminals. They've committed crimes all over the states. They're not staying at the border. They're going everywhere. So the people that are getting away, the ones that walk on the ranches, the private ranches, I just want to read you a couple of quotes from a couple of ranches that live on the border, and they see a lot of this traffic come through their property. A lot of them can't use their property as it's intended. This is from one rancher. I've personally lived here for the last 26 years and what I have witnessed over the last two years has been completely insane. Safety has become a major concern. My wife, my kids, our employees and myself wear a pistol everywhere we go on the ranch. We have been cussed at, threatened, had rocks and sticks thrown at us. Our dogs have been beaten on multiple occasions by illegal aliens. Every hunting camp I have has been vandalised. Our headquarters have been broken into. Over half of our highway gates have been run through. Most of my hunting blinds have been vandalised. One was set on fire and several used as bathrooms. So it's a daily occurrence for the ranchers down there. Another rancher, he talked about how in 2014, Border Patrol apprehended 37 illegal immigrants on his property. He now sees on his own cameras... 10 miles in from the border, at least 200 individuals a night coming through his property. He's moved his family off the ranch. He's had to hire a full-time employee who spends 40 hours a week fixing fences and picking up trash. That's all he does. He talked a little bit about the financial loss, which is hard to estimate because they're just patching things up, mostly water-related water troughs for the animals and the fences. He estimates he spent about $300,000 last year just patching things up. If he had to replace it all, 
it would be more than $800,000. So aside from the walkers, there's the smuggling in the vehicles. And this is all in a a very small county, 3,100 people, one main town of 1,800. So there's a lot of activity. As far as the vehicle smuggling, in 2020, the sheriff said that they arrested 169 alleged smugglers. Uh, Last year, 2022, that number was 741. So it's everything's more than tripled. And the smugglers, it's a whole other industry. The smugglers are being recruited on social media mostly, TikTok, WhatsApp, with promises of, of lots of cash. Smugglers have been coming down from Ohio, Washington State, Illinois. They'll fly down to San Antonio, rent a car, come to the border, pick up a car load and come back. Smugglers from Oklahoma, Louisiana, Florida. Sheriff told me a couple of weeks ago they're now starting to see license plates from New York and New Jersey. Last year in May, the deputies caught a 15-year-old kid smuggling. During the traffic stop, he tried to run over one of the deputies. They shot him multiple times. He survived. He was back in October. Sheriff said he still had holes in him. He was still healing. He was back in October picking up another load. Another smuggler was being chased by uh, Texas state troopers. The driver started shooting at oncoming cars in the hopes that DPS would stop the pursuit and let him go basically another smuggler crashed into a house in the, in the town a lot of the times when the smugglers flee they'll crash there's been carloads of just 11 bodies flying everywhere a lot of times they have to call in the helicopter from san antonio for all of the um injuries ems director has said that his average call outs for a year for the um, Kenny County EMS would be about 250 a year. And in December, he was at 561 calls so far for 2022. And he sees everything. He sees amputated limbs from people jumping off trains and, and getting run over, snake bites, everything, car wrecks. And he doesn't get paid back. He's down $73,000 at the moment. He sends a bill to Homeland Security and it comes back not eligible. So that's where it ends. The burden is on the county for that. Just one other thing I wanted to mention to finish off is um, these people that are coming across, whether they give up or, or they're a gotaway, they have to pay the cartel one way or another. And the sheriff said recently they picked up a a young woman from Honduras. She was in the brush trying to get away. She was in debt, $5,000 to get from Honduras across the U.S. border to San Antonio. And she had been told that she would be in San Antonio for a while to pay off her $5,000 debt before she was allowed to get to her final destination, which was the East Coast, where she would owe another $5,000. So everyone has to pay. And the final speaker is Chuck Holton. Right. So I've been covering immigration for 20 years. And uh, even in the last couple of years, have been basically at every portion of that pipeline. And it is a pipeline. It's a, it's, 
almost an unbroken conga line of people coming north. And these are not the same kinds of people that you saw a decade ago who were mostly coming for work, mostly from Latin America, especially from Northern Latin America and Mexico and, and Central America. We're seeing increasing numbers of what they used to call exotics because they were so strange, but they're not so strange anymore. So I've traveled the length and breadth of that pipeline trying to get a more granular look at not just who's coming, but why they're coming. What are their motivations? And who is the smuggler? This is the big question that I think a lot of people don't understand is that they hear about the smugglers that are bringing these people up and they imagine these shadowy cartel figures or the tatted gangbangers with the, the face tats and stuff. And there are some of those. But what we find is that a vast majority of the smugglers are the governments themselves, including our own government. As I've reported on immigration, not just in Latin America or even in the Western Hemisphere, but around the world, one of the things that you see is that immigrants are virtually always used as weapons. They're weaponized one form or fashion. In this case, the amazing thing about this flow, the overrun that Todd is talking about in his book, is that what we'll find is that the, the migrants are being weaponized by our own government against our own citizens. And this is a very strange kind of dynamic that affects everything about how they get here and why. So I want to show, for those of you that are not familiar with the Darien Gap, I want to give you some visuals to kind of have in your head while we talk about this. This is the border between Colombia and Panama. It is a, about the most extreme topography on planet Earth. Bugs the size of your hat, <laughs> uh, you know, house plants the size of houses. There's a swamp the size of Delaware in there. And that's one of the reasons why you will never see a road through that area. It's also a, a very good barrier to slow down the drugs coming from South America and even to slow down diseases like hoof and mouth disease. There's a long running program right along the Darien Gap that's paid for by the U.S. government that continues to this day where they fly airplanes over the Darien Gap every week and drop a bug that kills the screw worms that carry the hoof and mouth disease. So it's an important ecosystem down there. And that ecosystem is being destroyed by what we're seeing with the just record numbers of migrants. When I started covering the Darien Gap in about 2014, they were seeing annual numbers that equal monthly numbers now. And that's never happened before. This has only happened during the Biden administration. So now we're seeing last year, a quarter million people coming through the Darien Gap from 150 different countries. We started to report that the route the people were taking through there was taking them six and a half days. And by talking to the migrants themselves, when they came out of the jungle, asking them, how many people did you go in with and how many people did you come out with? We determined that between one in seven and one in 10 of people who went into the jungle never came out again. Now, many of those people don't show up on any database. They don't even have passports. Many of them are stateless persons. Or, or if they did have a passport, they got it robbed or they threw it away. They very often get rid of them on purpose. And so there's no record of them in there. And so the true numbers of people who have died in the jungle, in that trackless wilderness, is, is impossible to even calculate. 
But again, just the, the best way we could do it was saying, how big was your group when you went in and how big was your group when you came out? We even went to the Colombian side and looked at groups and met people as they went in and then came around and found them on the Panamanian side when they came out and measured the people they were missing. And what we found is that between 10% and even a little more than that of the people who go in there did not come out again to the point where the Indian villages that they first come to after walking six days through the jungle, these are very small Indian villages deep in the Darien that don't have electricity or, or like a well, they got their water from the river. That's, but they could no longer drink the water out of the river because of all the dead bodies that were in the river upstream. And so they were having to bring bottled water into a place that gets 12 to 15 feet of rain a year in order to drink so that their people could survive because they couldn't drink the water out of the river like they've done for 500 years or more. And you might ask like, well, why would people from Afghanistan and Syria and China come through the Darien Gap? Why don't they just fly to Mexico? Well, they come to the Western Hemisphere to the only place where they can get in. And that's typically Ecuador because Ecuador will let anybody in without a visa. Sometimes some countries, they can go to Brazil and, and start there, but then they have to take buses up to the Darien, walk through the Darien. Once they get through the Darien Gap, though, the governments become the smugglers because the government of Panama doesn't want a quarter million people in their country that they have to care for. And so they put them on a bus and drive them to the Costa Rican border. At the Costa Rican border, they walk across, they get picked up by the authorities there, and they get put on a bus and taken to the Nicaraguan border. So on and so forth, all the way. It's a hot potato, like you said, all the way to the, to the U.S. southern border. And they know this. They know this. So when it came out that you could get into the United States easier if you were a pregnant woman or if you had a child with you, we saw an explosion in the number of pregnant women and children walking through that jungle. And I'm talking about, like, I just met a woman the other day that walked through there with a one-month-old baby. And so many of those babies would get washed away when they were trying to cross a river because there's no bridge. They had to swim across these big rivers, and they just get washed downstream. They, they'd lose them. They had, in one year, I think the year before last, they had 39 children, so young that they couldn't tell you where they were from or even maybe tell you their name come out of the jungle without their parents because the parents died of exposure or drowning or whatever in the jungle. And the children would come wandering out of the jungle with no parents. And Panama what, doesn't know what to do with them. They don't know where they're from. They, they, there's no, no way to even determine what country they're from. And they don't have a system for that in Panama. So they would put them in a hospital or put them in a hotel or something. And, you know, they put an ad in the paper looking for family members or anybody that knew who they were. And when nobody came forward, then they would just give them a Panamanian name and put them in school. And so there's a lot of Juans and Marias that are actually from like Congo or someplace that are now growing up in Panama as orphans. And Panama typically doesn't have an orphanage system. Uh, so there's, there was no system to deal with that. So they really they had to create a whole new section of Centerfront to deal with that. What we're seeing now is a tremendous number of Chinese people coming through. And that doesn't diminish the number of uh, Cubans and Venezuelans and Haitians that are coming through. Up until just recently, that was the biggest numbers of people coming. Those people now can come directly to the United States with the help of that CBP-1 app if they have a sponsor in the U.S. But that has not 
diminish the numbers of them coming through the Darien Gap so much. And when you talk to them and you say, you know, the, the U.S. government says you have to go through the CBP-1 app. And they say, yeah, we tried. The website was down or it, they say it's full. They've already reached their quota. Remember, that's 120,000 people a month that the Biden administration is escorting into the United States. And they're already claiming, as we said they would, that we have reduced the numbers of illegal crossers by 120,000 a month. No, they haven't. They've just pre-legalized them. It's like TSA pre-check for those people coming through, and it just allows them in. And then, as the government very often does, they just change the metrics. They change how they measure. They don't change the numbers. They just change how they measure the numbers. And so the people that we're seeing coming through the gap now are saying, well, I'm from Haiti, but they don't know that, and I don't have a passport, so I'm just going to tell them I'm from the Dominican Republic, and therefore I'm not subject to that 30,000-month quota coming through the CBP-1 app. But as I showed there, we've seen a tremendous jump in the number of Chinese people that are coming, and they're coming for the same reasons everyone else is coming. Now, keep in mind, how many countries do they have to cross through to get to the United States border? It's over a dozen, and any of those countries, they could build a life. In fact, the majority of Haitians and Cubans that you see coming through the Darien Gap now on their way to the United States are not coming from Haiti or Cuba. They have for years been in places like Peru and Chile, making a living, making a life. They're well-dressed, they're well-fed, they have iPhones, they've been making money, but they're coming to the United States now after being three, four, five, six, seven, eight years in making a life in another country, specifically because the gate is open. And so this is what you see. There's a direct correlation between the messaging of the administration here in the United States and the number of people coming through. There's a direct correlation in the types uh, and demographics of the people coming through based on the policies of the United States, those pull factors. Okay, so the push factors that everybody talks about in the media is war and oppression. They're, they're fleeing war and oppression. Well, yeah, Haiti's a really bad place to live. You don't want to live in Haiti. But the people that are coming to the United States that are Haitian are not coming from Haiti. They've been living in the Dominican Republic for many years. They've been living in Chile or, or, or Peru for many years. And they're coming right now because people are handing out cookies in the United States. I'm going to tell you a quick story about a Cuban couple to illustrate that point. There was a Cuban couple I met coming right out of the Darien Gap. Their feet were in such bad shape from trench foot that they, they couldn't walk by the time they got out of there. And I, I literally treated them, me and my sons, gave them first aid when they got out because the, the skin was sloughing off their feet. And they just had raw, bloody feet when they came out. They were a couple, uh, the, a married couple that had both been school teachers in Cuba, and their combined salary in Cuba was $45 a month. They decided to come to the United States. And so then I gave them my phone number and I said, I'm trying to track the route that you take to get to the U.S. southern border. So every time you move, would you do me a favor and just text me where you are? Text me your location. And they did. And they showed me the route they took all the way to the United States. Took them about three weeks or a month, maybe. And I happened to be visiting my family in Dallas when they made it to El Paso. And they texted me and they said, we made it. We're in the United States. And I said, wow, that's great. I said, if you make it through Dallas, I'm here for a few days. I'd love to you know, buy you a cup of coffee or something. So I, I was able to meet them in Dallas. 
And they said, hey, could you do us a favor? Uh, we need a ride over to this church in Fort Worth. And I said, okay, I, I'm going that way. So I gave them a ride over to the church. I guess that makes me a smuggler. <laughs> they were already in the U.S., you know. So I, one of my, my things, I'm never going to help people get to the United States. Once they're there, I guess it, it doesn't matter so much. But I, And I was very interested to see why they wanted to go to this church. Well, there was a program administered by the state of Texas and that through this this church was, was uh, well, administered through the church where they could sign up and get a stipend for two years to kind of help them get their feet under them now that they're in the United States. But they knew how to game this system because of some of the WhatsApp groups and stuff that they're, they're part of that are where migrants tell each other, hey, this is where to go and this is what to do. So rather than go in as a married couple, they went in as two single people and signed up twice and got twice as much money. So they came out of there with about $1,200 a month for two years that they could use to live on. Then they got on a bus and went to Miami and signed up for a similar program in Florida. Again, two different people. So within a month of arriving in the United States, they were making $3,200 a month in stipends and benefits from the federal government and two different state governments that were supposed to be to help them get their feet under them that would have gone away once they got jobs. But instead, they went and got jobs under the table that they didn't report. And so I actually visited them maybe six months later in Miami, and they were making $60,000 a year between what they made working and the stipends that they were still receiving. They had two cars, they had a house, and they had had a baby by then that was an American citizen. They then were sending money back to their friends and family in Cuba to finance the next round of illegal migration coming to the United States. And in this way, the U.S. taxpayer is in large part functioning as the smuggler because we're paying people to come north and we're paying for that next wave of migration. I want to end by telling you one more way that taxpayer treasure is being used to assist the migrants in their journey north. You probably know that the United States funds the vast majority of the United Nations. And as a part of the United Nations, uh, there is the Organization for Immigration and Migration. This is, uh, again, listen to the wording here. It's the Organization for Immigration and Migration. That's to assist with immigration and migration. We're funding that. And what we've seen, uh, as Todd and I have traveled around, the again, all over Latin America, is that in many places, these people would be stuck, but for the fact that they can go to a center, they can go to an office in Cucuta, Colombia, in Tapachula, Mexico, in various places along the route, and they can register with the Organization for Immigration and Migration and can receive a check or in the, in the form of a debit card. They can receive a visa debit card that they can then use to fund the next leg of their journey to, to survive as they go along. And this is happening all along the route, all the way up to the U.S. southern border. And we've seen it ourselves in many places. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll end and we can go on. That's it for this week. The full video as well as audio of this presentation is available at cis.org. And like I said before, it includes the video snippets that each of the speakers included as part of their presentation. 
So thanks for joining us this week, and I hope you'll tune in next week to Parsing Immigration Policy.